We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. How many of you in here, I know the answer for a lot of you, but how many of you in here have ever taken a road trip, ever taken a road trip, all right, and not used a computer to find out how to get where you were going, meaning a phone or a GPS. All right. You, you, all right, see, and so we've got some young people, so I want them just to know how blessed they are because there's some things about technology that we can curse, but I want to tell you, I thank the Lord. Uh, I am thankful for GPS and for apps on the phone and be able to tell it where to tell me to go. I'm a fan. I'm a huge fan. In fact, I don't even know how I would get anywhere. And it's amazing. Do you ever leave out somewhere and you've never been there before and you just implicitly trust the phone? I do. Sometimes I'm like, I don't even know whether that, I think that's east. Like, I think I know I'm supposed to go east. But we go and we are blindly often take, listening to this, this GPS about where it is we're supposed to go. But before that, how many of you, all right, this is going to date some of you. Y'all going to learn something tonight. You're going to be like, man, those people in there are so old. Uh, um, we had these things, all right, and you, in the, in, normally if you were a normal person, you kept this behind the front seat of the car. That, like on the back, in the back, there was like a pocket that was on the back of one of the front seats, and normally the cover was made out of pleather. You know when I say pleather, that's like plastic, fake, faux leather, and it had a little buckle on the front. But the buckle, because everybody's buckle was the same, the buckle, because it didn't get used very often, and the humidity in the summers, the buckle would, the brass on the buckle would turn that kind of green, kind of powdery and then when you tried to push it in to be able to undo the atlas you would open it up and then you had to actually open up maps like paper maps and you had to figure out where you were and then you had a, a little legend at the bottom that's like on a map there's a square at the bottom and it like gives you it tells you what things are and stand for and you had to look at the scale and you realized okay one inch equals a hundred miles then you had to take like a ruler and you had to go from wherever you were going to there and go okay that's about 600 miles and then you had to get a calculator they weren't even on your phone. You had to get a whole nother calculator. Like it, You couldn't just go to a different app. You had to get a calculator out, and then you had to divide like 65 into the number of miles and then add about 15 to 20 minutes for every 200 miles for stops to figure out how long you, it was before you were going to get there. And some of the worst fights that children ever saw in their lives were when people were trying to read atlases. I, I, don't, I don't know if any of you are like this, but my wife is one of the most beautiful, wonderful, smart. I mean, I don't have enough adjectives to describe, but for some reason, she confuses her left and right. Like, we will be driving somewhere, and she'll say, take a right, and I'll take a right. She'll say, I meant left, and I don't know how you messed that up. Like, I I don't know. Like, I love you, baby, but, like, this is always right, and this is always left. Always. 
And so you'd see people erupt. So now we've got, and, and you can even set it to different voices. Some of you like the English woman, hello? And you like her to tell you which direction you're going. I, sometimes you, it's more digital. You can choose whatever you want to. And it gives you everything that you need to know to be able to get from where you are to where you need to be. But I've got to tell you um, that sometimes I think we can be a little too trusting of that. Sometimes we get in and we listen to it and we realize all of a sudden, hold on, wait a minute. And then all of a sudden that thing will say, rerouting. Have you seen this? And it starts spinning and the map goes out. And you realize in that moment, I have no idea where I am. I don't know where I'm going. If this thing goes kaput, I'm in bad shape. And you're digging around and you're thinking, I still wish I had that atlas. Like I, and, you, and you realize how dependent you are. But when it comes specifically to what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to live, it's very clear. The GPS coordinates, the directions, Jesus actually laid it out perfectly in Acts 1.8. And so the big idea is as the Holy Spirit empowers our witness, we are commanded to testify about the gospel. Watch this, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So you've heard that verse many, many times in your life, but I want you to think about it like um, picture an archery target in your mind. And if you picture an archery target in your mind, and the what what color is normally the bullseye? Like what's the what color is that? Is that red? Okay, like red. It's a picture like a red bullseye center. If you think about that, when Jesus was speaking to the disciples, Jerusalem was the red bullseye center. All right, so you have Jerusalem in the middle, and then everything was like concentric circles that are expanding out from Jerusalem. So you have Jerusalem, and then you have Judea, then you have Samaria, then you have the uttermost parts of the earth. So what Jesus promises them is something that I think when we read this verse, we take for granted. And it is when you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, from Acts 1 to Acts 2, there is something that happens that absolutely changes the face of what Christianity would look like. In fact, it, it came in a way that it had never come before, and it actually is now something that you and I share with the apostles, but it was something that the apostles did not have even when Jesus was speaking Acts 1-8. And what is it that I am talking about? The gifting or the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. So now, We've got to, to understand Acts 1-8, you've got to fast forward to Acts 2. Now, we're not going to read all of Acts 2 together, but we see that the Holy Spirit descends on them, and Acts 2 is one of the most pivotal parts of understanding the whole New Testament, but Acts 2 is also one of the most misunderstood passages in all of the New Testament. In fact, it wasn't misunderstood till about 150 years ago. Did you know that the church... For over a hundred, for up until really even, not even really even into the early parts of the 20th century, the 1920s, that the overwhelming majority of the church interpreted Acts 2 the exact same way. 
the exact same way. And then all of a sudden, we have things that pop up like well, you may have heard of the Azusa Street Revival. You start seeing things that are happening and all of a sudden, Acts 2 is misinterpreted. Now, I want to give you a little, little history of Pentecostalism, which is the mothership of charismatic theology, which is the mothership to even what we see today with seeker-sensitive movements and what we see today with the prosperity gospel. All these throughout church history, Acts 2 was interpreted the same way. And that is that the tongues of fire fell on the disciples and they preached the gospel and people heard the gospel in their native tongue. Why were there so many people that, didn't, that spoke different languages in Jerusalem at the time? Do you remember Acts 2? Passover. Did somebody preach a sermon on that? Recently, we all hear, a few of y'all came. And, and so they came at Passover, right? So they've got all these nationalities, all these different languages. Well, the problem is for the disciples, they don't preach all these different languages. So when the Holy Spirit falls on them, a supernatural gifting, an empowerment, Acts 1.8, falls on them. And the first place that they were witnesses was what? Jerusalem. And so they begin to preach. Now, when they begin to preach, something supernatural happened because God did not gift them with knowing other languages. All right? It wasn't that immediately they knew how to speak every other language. It was that as they spoke, God supernaturally allowed the words that they were speaking to be able to be heard and understood by people with it, that did not speak that language so that people could understand the gospel and people could get saved. Now, you want to know what the gift of tongues is? Acts 2. That's the gift of tongues. All right, so let me clarify that. When the Holy Spirit fell on them, they were supernaturally gifted by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what were they speaking? Were they speaking unknown languages or were they speaking known languages? Known languages, real languages. You say, well, what would that look like today? Well, there's a whole lot of debate whether or not the gift of tongues is still in operation. Well, let's talk about for just a moment. Let's just say that it is, all right? Let's just for a moment, say that the gift of tongues is still in operation. Then what is it? The gift of tongues would not then be that the Holy Spirit would allow someone to speak in what is known as ecstatic utterance. Some people refer to that as gibberish. It isn't that the Holy Spirit would allow someone to be able to speak in a language that is not known by anyone. It is that the Holy Spirit would supernaturally give someone to be able to speak in a language that they don't know. Now, we've got all these different ways to study, right? Now we've got all kind of opportunities to learn different languages, and we've got apps for our phone and all of those things. But if God so chose, God could allow someone to be able, in a moment, to be able to preach the gospel, not for their own edification. Now watch this. Here's another reason that the gift of tongues is butchered. No one was ever given the gift of tongues for their own sake. They were given the gift of tongues for the sake of the gospel and the sake of the church. All right? 
So they are given this gift of tongues. In fact, I think it would be better translated, they were given the gift of languages. That's actually the better translation of the Greek. So they were given the gift of languages, and they begin to speak in these languages so that people can understand them and people can get saved. Now, as they preach in Acts 2 and people are getting radically saved, what do they get accused of? You must be drunk. You, you must be drunk. It's amazing that what was an insult, watch this, what was an insult to the apostles has now become a compliment in charismatic traditions. If you act in ways that are perceived that you are so out of order that you have lost control of bodily function and now are acting in a way, whether it's throwing yourself on the floor or running laps or speaking in ecstatic utterance, if that's the way you're acting, people will then tell you, boy, they are full of... How is it that the Holy Spirit, by the power is in the New Testament tells us that we are to be sober-minded, alert, self-controlled, and orderly in worship, but somehow would blaspheme himself by causing people to act in a way that is not in accord with all of the commands that he's given in the New Testament. So when we talk about being full of the Holy Spirit... A fullness of the Holy Spirit is not that we would lose control of our minds or lose control of our body. In fact, a Holy Spirit-controlled life is one that is completely in control of their faculties, completely in control of their mind, that understands the depths of Scripture. So I think we need to be careful that we reclaim what it means to be filled of the Holy Spirit. And that emotionalism and Holy Spirit-filled life is not the same thing. Often, even with our young people, I'm scared to death that we send them to places and oftentimes when they are worked up into an emotional frenzy, we then say, oh, thank God you finally got the Holy Spirit. That is ridiculous. You can get worked up to an emotional frenzy at a Taylor Swift concert. I know because it happens all the time. Well, if I can get emotionally wound up not me personally but there are people you see it you go you can get into an emotional frenzy i've been watching nba basketball they're towards the end of the season they, they just had the western conference and the eastern conference finals and you're and i'm watching the celtics the other night and the celtics are just getting drummed by the miami heat on their home floor i mean just getting they're getting run out of their own gym and you can look up and you just see these people in Boston and it looks like that someone has just run over their dog. I mean, they are just they're completely deflated. On the other side, you can look at Miami Heat fans and they're screaming and going crazy and they're, they're, they're losing their minds. Now, by much of the theology that is espoused in churches today, you would have to say that Miami Heat fans are full of the Holy Spirit. That's not full of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I'm not saying that if we are full of the Holy Spirit that that won't espouse itself emotionally because there should be emotions that flow from your faith. If your faith is so dry that you never shed a tear over the gospel, you're not saved. If your faith is so dry that there's never a smile that comes to your face because of what Jesus has done for you, you're not, you're not saved. But emotion does not equal Holy Spirit-filled life. One of the dangers that has happened because of Pentecostal and charismatic traditions and found itself into otherwise conservative evangelical churches is that we, we have unwittingly assigned people a rank of believing they have a high level of spirituality because they are able to exhibit the most emotion. Think about it for a moment. That is not a qualifier for whether or not you live a Holy Spirit-filled life. And so you say, well, that's, you seem like you've gone on a tirade. I think I have. Welcome to the tirade. But I feel like that Acts 1-8 can't be understood if you don't understand what the power of the Holy Spirit coming on someone is. So people will say, well, I want to live a Holy Spirit-filled life. I want you to. And you should want that. But I think that a lot of people that say that aren't telling the truth. And here's why. Because there is, there, the Holy Spirit works in a lot of ways. But He does not work outside of the Word of God. So, there are people that say they want to be filled by the Holy Spirit because they want to have experiences and they want to have emotion and they want to be a part of that, yet they're devoid of any real study of the Bible in their life. They are devoid necessarily of private prayer life. And so what we know is, is the power does not come first and foremost from public displays that the power we have in the Holy Spirit comes from our time in the closet. It comes from our time on our knees before the Lord. It comes from our time of having our Bibles open. And if you want to be filled with the Spirit, be filled with the Word. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you're not filled with the Word. And that's why one of the reasons, I guess as a preacher, I get so frustrated. See, sometimes y'all get to just hear my pet peeves on Wednesday nights. Because sometimes I'll hear people say, oh man, that preacher is some kind of good. Now listen to me. I've got a lot of preachers that y'all can line up. I'll give you a list of people that I think are fantastic. But there's a lot of people that I hear people tell me are good that couldn't preach their way out of a wet paper bag. And here's why. Because they don't know the Word of God. And they're not preaching the Word of God, but because we've become a Hollywood infatuated culture. If somebody with theatrics or stage presence or charisma or energy, people will leave out of there and say, whoo-wee, he was preaching. No, he may have been hollering. He may have been on a good show. That may have been some good theatrics. But I'd rather listen to a guy who preached the Word of God, even if it's dry, even if it's not as engaging as I wish it would be, even if he's monotone. I'll take that every time if that person is preaching the truth of the Word of God over a load of emotionalism and theatrics that will not, will, that will not bind to your soul. And so when, when Jesus is telling them that they're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, it is so that now 
by the power of the Holy Spirit, their preaching is going to be so indwelled that people are going to come before the Lord Jesus and they're going to give their heart to the Lord Jesus. And it's not going to be because of the preachers of the message. It's going to be because of the power of the message. And that's where a lot of preachers, I think, I'm, I'm watching a, I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's been running right now. I think it's an F FX series and it's, it's on Hillsong. I don't know if any of you have seen this. It's a documentary on the fall of, basically the fall of Hillsong. And there's a lot of things that you could glean from that or from any other places. Um, but I think one of the things that's really important for every witness, every marturo, and certainly every preacher of the Word of God to hear, and that is this. There are no superstars in the kingdom of God. All right? We live in a culture where we celebrate fame and celebrate success and celebrate the, the power of the megastar. So because of that, we have fostered places with a megachurch mentality where it is that we are looking for this, this person who is now going to be have power and going to have success. And so the attributes of the world get attributed to man and then when that person elevates themselves, now all of a sudden we are more interested in the person than we are the message. And when that gets distorted, when that gets perverted, when that gets twisted, then all of a sudden we have these rising ups of false gospels. Because if my goal or your goal becomes to be elevated in the eyes of men, where then do I have to diminish if I'm elevated in the eyes of God, in the eyes of men, I just gave it away. If I'm elevated in the eyes of men, where am I going to diminish? In the eyes of God. Because if it is essential for me to be accepted and lauded by men, then what happens is, is I have to compromise truth so that I can tell itching ears what it is that they want to hear. It's exactly what we're seeing all over the country. And you can't divorce yourself from truth if the Holy Spirit is going to inspire it. So we, we see that all of this is coming, that he's telling them what's going to take place, even though they don't know exactly how that's going to play out. This key word that's spoken by Jesus, that there is this sense then that he's telling them that they're going to go out, that they're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But one of the things that I think we, we miss, and we're having Bible school this week. I'm pumped up uh, this coming up week. I'm, I'm teaching fifth grade. I've taught fifth grade Bible school. I, I mean, I think for about 15 years now, um, it's just it's kind of where I live. That's my zone, fifth grade. And so I'm pumped up about being with fifth graders next week and getting to share the gospel with them and talk about Jesus. But one of the things I think we need to start teaching young people early is that you do not get to choose whether or not if you're saved, you're a witness. It's almost like we say, okay, get saved and then decide whether you're going to be a witness. The question is, are you saved? And if you are saved, you are a witness. Some people are just really bad ones. Because wherever you're going, if you're saved, the gospel's going with you. So you're either having a positive impact for the gospel or you're having a negative impact for the gospel. So whether in Jer Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That's also, by the way, how we think that we ought to understand evangelism too. Um, I've heard so many debates in churches 
Um, even here, sometimes when we go, we're, we're you know, rebounding from COVID and, and getting back on our partnerships, and we're developing a partnership with Guatemala. We've got a partnership that we're developing in Africa right now. We're working on Romania. We have a partnership in Ecuador, all of those things. And so I've had more conversations about this than, than actually a little disturbing how many conversations I've had about this, that people will say things like, well, you know, there's a lot of lost people right here in Pike County. I, I agree. A hundred percent I agree. Lostness is a problem in Pike County. It's why every time we pick up the paper, we're hearing about gang violence and thefts and all of the issues that we have right here. You say, what is the predominant problem we have? It's lostness. It's people at their core that need to be revolutionized and their hearts changed. That being said, I don't know why we have to keep having the conversation about whether or not we need to carry the gospel across the street or around the world. The answer is not across the street or around the world. The answer is we carry the gospel across the street and around the world. It's not that by doing one we're not doing the other. It's that we ought to be doing all of it as a church. And so that's how we understand Acts 1-8 to be our mandate as well. If, if our Jerusalem, if you will, is summit, that's, that's where you currently are sitting. You were in Summit, Mississippi. So this is our Jerusalem. And the concentric rings, our Judea and Samaria and the uttermost, go out. So we carry the gospel out from here. And so, um, so what Jesus is, is telling them is that to get ready, because the Holy Spirit is going to use them, that they are to look for opportunities, not to be sitting in the sidelines, but to get in the game, to get in the game. Um, nobody wants to be on a team and be second string or third string, and nobody wants to be a water boy. But the issue becomes, sometimes in the Christian life, we think, well, what can I do? What can I do? I'm, I don't feel like a first stringer. What can I do? Well, first of all, there's no such thing as a first stringer. But second of all, the one thing that we're called, all called to do is furnish one holy life that we live as a witness or a marturo, the martyrs that we are called to be for the gospel. Um, so then we, we just have some stats here. Um, when's the last time you shared your faith? When's the last time you shared your faith? I think that's a great question to write in your Bible. When is the last time I shared my faith? I'm not talking about necessarily that you ran someone down and that you maybe gave them the whole Roman road. I mean, when is the last time you talked about Jesus? When is the last time his name came up? When is the last time you told someone about what he's done for you? When's the last time that Jesus came up? That's a great conversation to ask. We speak an average of 16,000 words per day. Most of us converse statistically with between 7 and 15 people every day. But 80% of our words are shared with a small group of about 5 trusted people. So think about that for just a moment. At the most, most people have a conversation with maybe 15 people a day. But 80% of the conversations that you have are with the same 5 people. That's probably true for most 80%. 4 out of 5 of the words you speak kind of with the same 5 people. 
That's to be understood, especially if we live in houses or families or we work in the environments with the same people. But so because of that, it can became, become difficult for us, first of all, to ask ourselves the question, have we shared with those five? Have we shared with the 15? And then have we shared with more than that? Um, so I, I just want to put, that, put this out there. Um, if it seems like I've been on a social media rampage lately, um, probably... Um, at times, it's not that, again, I'm not against social media. Our church uses it, and I think it's got wonderful functions. But I think one of the difficulties with social media is it kind of became like Jesus Fish did in the 1990s. You know what I'm talking about, Jesus Fish? Th those people would stick them on the back of their car, and so people would stick a, on the back of their car, or they'd get a WWJD bracelet and run around with it, and it's like, well, I'm, I've been a witness People saw fish on the back of my car. Well, now, because you thumbs up a post, people are like, well, people are going to see my witness. I like that clip, or I like that sermon, or I like that quote. That is not a substitute. That is the bumper sticker of the 2020s. Likes on social media are the bumper stickers of 2020. And I fear that sometimes because we do that, we get these feeds and it's like people are going to know where I stand because of where I did, what I did on Facebook. Now, let me just say that, and I said Facebook, and I know I found out the other day, I'm not on any of it, but I found out the other day that when I'm speaking to young people, I don't need to talk about Facebook because only old people have Facebook, that young people do not have Facebook, um, that they have Instagrams and TikToks and all the other whatever that they've got, but not Facebook. But when you get on Facebook and you, or you get on Instagram or you get on whatever it is that you're on, whatever, that, whatever application that you're using, the problem is sometimes that we get so sucked in to what it is that we think that we're pouring out there that, yes, we are responsible for our online presence. Do you know how many people don't get hired for stuff because of the stupid things that they put online? You are what you post. I mean, I mean, I'm just, that's a free warning. I won't charge you for that. But you are what you post. But the second problem is sometimes is that we also begin to think that because we have posted something or liked something or even loved something, that's, that now we are, do not have to engage personally with people. How many people have been won to Christ because someone liked a social media post? I don't know the statistics, but I'm guessing low, like really low. People come to Christ because someone tells them about Jesus. That's why. That, that's what it means to be a witness. So I want to hit this, and, and, and then we'll be done tonight. Sometimes the last point that you see on your listing sheet, sometimes we cloak our timidity in looking for signs. Lord, if you want me to speak to someone about you, would you just give me a sign? That is the dumbest prayer I've ever heard in my life. So I'm going to give you a sign. You ready? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses into Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's your sign. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18, 19, and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples. There's 
your sign. When we want a sign, God's already given it to us. And sometimes I think we waste a lot of prayer time saying, God, if you want me to do this, then God, show me. He's already shown you. He's already shown you. That's a prayer he's already answered. So when we know that, it's not that we're going we're gonna to go outside and that somehow there's going to be writing in the clouds because there's, there's already been writing that's been placed in the book of life. Um, and I'll say this as well. We've talked a lot about the issue of a lifestyle testimony. And I'll say very clearly, you can't live like the devil and preach Jesus. That's not going to work. But it doesn't matter how holy you live, if you never speak the name, they're not going to look at you and say, they live such a good life, I want to get saved. Because they're not going to know who can save them, how to be saved, what they need to do to be saved. Yes, our lifestyle may attract people to what God has done in us, but eventually we have to tell. We have to be a marturo. We have to be a witness. We have to act 1-8. We have to speak by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. That's great for you. You, you like talking. That's obvious. Look, it's Wednesday night and you hadn't shut up for 40 minutes. Right? This isn't a problem for you, but that, that's not my gift. That's not, that's not me. That's just not, I'm not cut out for that. I think far too often we have worried about what our gifting is when we just need to worry about telling people what Jesus has done for us. It's not about how good you are at sharing your faith. It's about how powerful the Holy Spirit is when you share your faith. We've been talking about a man who had a speech impediment for the last weeks that stuttered and stumbled and was 80 years old and ancient and seeing bushes blown up and standing before the most powerful man in the world. Do you think that was because of Moses and eight power? No, it was because he was emboldened by the power of God. And friends, you can be too. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you that you've given us a very clear commission that we are to be your witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. I thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit and that it's not by our might or valor, but it's by the Spirit of God that we are called to do this. So Lord, empower us, embolden us, give us eyes to see. Lord, thank you that you've given us a very clear sign through your word and that, Lord, we can be filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you. We ask for a greater filling because we hunger more for you. Lord, may we be filled by our search for your word, by our prayer life, and by the saints that you place to walk alongside us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.